0: It's time to hit my overflowing inbox and answer some of your beautiful and thought provoking questions. Welcome to Love Life, featuring your host, Jane Donovan. The sun shines bright as it moves across my face. I feel the light. Welcome to Love Life. I'm Jane Donovan, and this week I've had some fun delving into my inbox and answering four of your questions. The first one we're delving into is the battle of the sexes that's resulted in deep relationship resentment for a lady. I'm taking a look at superstitions, the intent behind them and touch again on communicating with the universe. We're helping the highly sensitive children, particularly when they're overwhelmed and experiencing a meltdown and how best you can support and help them through that stage. Advising a new single man who's wanting to date, and I also share how to support recently separated people. There's a letter in your mailbox. Now, you now, mail. now who the hell is this emailing me at eleven twenty-six? <laughs> Send me an email with all the details. You've got mail. You've got. You've got mail. You, 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 you've got some mail. And I do have some mail this week. I've got an email from a lady who says, I'm struggling with my relationship. I've got twin girls and a husband who flies in and flies out for work. I find when he gets home, I resent him for not being here and I'm angry all the time. Can you help? Yes, of course I can help. However, this is quite an extreme situation. The guts of this question is really about the disconnection between the man and the woman, the parents of these two twin girls. What is added to this situation to make it more extreme than what many people will perhaps identify with is that to have twins, of course, is an awful lot more responsibility and work than if you just have the one child. And at the same time, to have a husband that is flying in and flying out, he's not present in the everyday routine. It is so common particularly when children are young, for partnerships to really feel disconnected. There is a huge battle that does go on between the sexes and it looks something like, it's not fair, I'm doing all of this and you're only doing that, or it's not fair, I've got the commitment of this and you're only doing that. Now, to be really stereotypical here and to generalise dreadfully we're talking about the tradition of the female being resentful that she's the primary caregiver of the children 24-7, resenting the fact that she is having to organise everything about the children's lives as well as likely probably working as well and producing an income. And the male is often resentful of the fact that she actually gets what he perceives is time at home, relaxing, enjoying the children, while he's off at a daily routine of likely nine to five going off and earning the income to keep the roof over the head. Now, it does sound incredibly 1950s, and while there's many variations on this, we still have this constantly happening in relationships. So before judging that this is really old-fashioned, we've got to really look at the guts of it, that the battle is still emotionally going on between who does the most work And there is resentment from both sides. So how can we get back on the same page? All right, the first thing is to accept where you currently are at. So if you have chosen to be a stay-at-home parent, or if you have chosen to be the person that is going out of the home, whether it's daily or in this case, flying in, flying out to earn an income, or if you have together negotiated the roles that each of you are playing, you have to accept this. Now, I know myself, I went through this when my children were little. It's an incredibly tough time. Yes, it's a beautiful time too, but there are a lot of challenges, particularly with a relationship. And I can remember at one point I had to get really honest with myself and say, do I want to be the traditional man or do I want to be the traditional woman in this? Now, I wanted to be staying at home and caring for my little ones. I wanted to be that mum, so I had to accept that that this is what it looks like and this is how it is. There are so many versions of this that if you are the parent that has chosen to go to work and you've chosen to put your child in childcare, accept that. If you are the person that has chosen to try and do it all, to work from home and raise children and be a loving partner, then accept that. And when I use the word you chose, I want you to recognise that Yes, there are situations that we feel like we don't have a say in it. You know, there can be financial pressures, there can be health pressures, there can be time pressures, but we do choose everything at some level. And that's where we've got to get really honest about this. We're never going to really empathize with each other at a greater level when we're in the thick of deep emotion, exhausted from the commitment that is ongoing, we're not going to get to a place of, oh, I understand he's off working really hard or I understand she's the one that's the first point of call that wakes up 24 seven at the first sound of the children. So just accept where you are at because you are not going to win this battle. Now, the next thing is letting go of your entitlement So accepting when you are at and stop the scorecard, the scorecard of everything that you do, and you know you're keeping it in your head and projecting that to your partner, likely in passive-aggressive ways. Get real about that and look that you are coming from a place of entitlement. Now, I don't disagree with any of this, I don't disagree that you're not entitled to more whatever. I don't disagree that your husband is not entitled to more whatever. However, we have to accept where we are at. Now, this has resulted in a disconnection because you are resentful of each other, perhaps envious of each other. I am sure that the traditional woman that is staying at home and caring for children is resentful at times that he gets to go off and lead an adult life, that he gets to walk away from the 24-7 responsibility. I get that the guy is envious of the fact that she's at home, but we need to understand that that is causing the disconnection. So we've got to have a change of mindset. Have a look at the different things that I've mentioned there and see if any of those trigger with you that you're feeling that and see if you can change your mindset around that. Now, if you can, then the next point is, can you make a new commitment to your relationship? Because it's not going to get better by itself. You've got to put some effort in here and that's going to take both of you. And likely, if you're in this little battle of the sexes, you could be throwing your hands up in the air and going, well, why should I go first? Why can't he or she do it? Why do I always have to be the one? It's just another thing that I have to organize and make happen. The reality is, if you want the relationship that you're desiring, then yes, you do. You've got to step up and make this happen. So one of the simplest ways to do this is to create a sacred space where the two of you can reconnect. Now, because you're so far off the same page at this point, I would encourage you to make sure that the reconnection ritual of creating a sacred space is for a very short period of time. So I'm suggesting something like about 30 minutes. I feel if you can create something like, well, in this scenario, when he flies back in. I imagine what's going on is that when he flies back in, you hand the two beautiful girls over to him and go, there you go. I've taken care of them for the past 10 days. It's your job now. I'm out of here. And you're probably in the car in two seconds flat to go around and see some girlfriends with half a bottle of wine. So I get that, but we need to put a pause on this. This is about setting your intent and commitment to create the relationship that you desire. So pause on the dumping and create the space of reconnection. So if that were me, my husband and I love picky platters. So we'd put together, I'd put together a nice gourmet platter. I'd put some nice music on. We'd turn off all of the electronic devices and we would just sit down and just chat and chat about easy subjects. Don't get into the battles of, I had to do this. Because what likely is happening is that you're both having the battle about who's got the biggest victim story. So one comes home and says, you know, hi, how are you? And you offload with what's happened in the last 10 days within the first 30 seconds. And I had to do this and this happened. Not only that, but I had to deal with this situation. I'm exhausted. I'm tired. I'm worn out. It's not fair. Or perhaps the reverse is happening and it could be, you know, I've had a really hard battle when I've been away. I miss home. I miss my friends. I don't have great living conditions. I feel like I'm working long shifts. They're 12-hour days. Whatever is going on, you're both battling with each other and you're dumping your stuff on each other. So you have to have a commitment to be conversing about neutral, safe topics. And initially, if you have to, write a list write a list about a movie you might like to see and share why you think that the other person might enjoy that we we'll talk about nice things that have happened in your home perhaps there's been garden the flowers have bloomed or perhaps you've tried a new recipe that you want to cook for him or her whatever it is try and find some nice neutral things to talk about it can be current affairs that you both share the same interests and are on the same page neutral is the key and in that space you just set the intent of connection it's not the dumping ground and you enjoy being in each other's company i suggest no more than 30 minutes and then go about your day. Now, the key to this is that the first 30 minutes is not going to solve your problem, That you are going to do this if you're in a regular nine to five Monday to Friday kind of situation. Do this as often as you can, ideally every night, even if it's 15 minutes, just do it every night. No checking emails, no having the TV on, no answering text messages or jumping on Facebook. Just give yourself that time to just be in each other's energy. Now, this is going to build up over time. So the more that you do this, if it can be every night, brilliant. If you can do it two or three times a week, great. If in this case where you've got the partner is flying in, flying out, then you do need to try and do it each day while he is here. You've got to create some momentum about this. And what you're doing is actually creating a ritual and a safe space for you in time to be able to start to share at a much more energetically neutral level what you're really feeling. So instead of it being the victim pity party and the big I'm going to offload and dump on you why it's not fair and everything I've had to put up with or deal with, instead what you've created over time is a space for your partner to come and sit down with you and for either of you to say, how are you? and listen to the other person's response and be in that supportive place of hearing them. So often, all we want is to be heard and appreciated. We want to know that we matter. It's that simple. But you have to create the space first and the the other person has to gather the evidence that that space is there for them to be safe, to be able to share their vulnerability, to be able to share their emotions without it being a slinging match of, oh, you've got a bad day, well, listen to me, I can one-up you on that. So the secret is consistency in creating the sacred space as a new ritual. And as time progresses, you will find you start to get back on the same page. So I hope that's helped. You have new mail. I have a question about superstitions. In England, we have a thing about magpies, one for sorrow, two for joy. If you see one on its own, it's predicting sadness is coming. If you see two, then something good will happen. I always thought it was silly, but it's like tarot cards or runes, I guess. If you're using a medium to talk to the universe, then it'll talk back to you, be it magpies or anything. What's your thoughts on this? I love this question. I actually do like superstitions. However, it's quite interesting what superstitions are. And I particularly love the story of the magpies. I've not heard that one before. One for sadness, two for luck. Well, according to the internet, the source of all great trustworthy information, superstition is excessively and credulously believing in and reverence for the supernatural. It's a widely held but irrational rational belief in supernatural influences, especially as leading to good or bad luck, or a practice based on such belief. So let's have a look at that. Well, I believe in the supernatural, so I guess, therefore, I'm superstitious. I believe in leading of good or bad luck. Well, I actually don't believe in luck at all, be it good or bad, but I do believe in intent. And I clearly believe in what you give your thought to grows. So therefore, if you are somebody who has fun or believes in in superstition, then likely you're giving your focus to it. So in this scenario, if you saw one magpie and you believed that sadness was coming, I believe that you would start to give your focus to that and you would start to see the evidence that supports this to be the truth. If you saw two magpies, maybe your mindset would turn to more positive things and you would start to see the good happen. So let's have a look at some of the different superstitions that are pretty typical or well-known and delve into a little bit deeper what the mindset could be about in relationship to superstitions. Beginner's luck. Now, I've had that said to me and I've been guilty of saying it, but not in anything serious. It would more be teaching somebody how to play a new card game and they win the first go. So it's usually somebody throws out the beginner's luck thing when they are an expert at something and they've lost at it to somebody who's quite new at it. Now, the mindset there can be of somebody that doesn't know what they're doing. They've got no fear of failure. Perceived failure because again, I don't really believe in failure. However, they don't have that fear because they've got nothing to lose. They're expected to come last, they're not expected to do well. And it's why, in most great sporting events, the underdog is the easier position to be in than the reigning perceived leader. They have more to lose. So perhaps the beginner's luck is also about the mindset of being free to just give it a go. Being free to do your best. I don't know. It's interesting. What about bad luck comes in threes? I find this one quite interesting because this is a little bit similar to the magpies that was in the original question from a listener. The bad luck comes in threes. It's almost like that psychological mindset of like, confirmation bias. Once the power of suggestion is placed in your mind, you will therefore go ahead and manifest it. I actually remember a friend of mine, oh, going back about 20, 25 years ago, and I worked in entertainment and I was representing then a psychic where I used to get him bookings, television, radio, media, etc. And I brought him into the office for my boss at the time to check him out. And he said, Jane, don't ask him to read me because I don't believe in that stuff. And I said, well, why don't you give it a go? He might be really accurate. And his reply was, no, I'm not interested in somebody putting the power of suggestion into my mind. And I can remember back then rolling my eyes and thinking, how ridiculous. But actually, I look back now and think, how clever, how smart. And that is why I feel it's so important that when you hand your power over to another who has psychic abilities, that you really know that they are clean, that they are really coming from the highest, most purest, beautiful vibrational light and that they are coming from love and not fear. It's also important that they've done a lot of their own work, that you don't trigger them to place them in a position of power over you to be able to place suggestions that are not in alignment with your higher self. So I do find this one quite interesting. So I imagine that bad luck comes in threes could come about where you have one bad luck thing happen and you let that one go, The next day you have a second thing happen. Now you're looking for the third thing and at the same time you've brought the forgotten bad luck of the day before into the series to collate it as three and you're almost hoping that something bad that happens is just going to be a little bit of bad, not a big lot of bad and you want it out the way. I suggest that if this one is you, let it go. My thing with superstition is that really it's about fun. And it's about light and love. It's like everything. What is your intent? If there is fear in a superstition that something is going to happen that's bad, please don't give it the energy. Please don't give it your intent. Don't give it your mindset because your mind is incredibly powerful and you will manifest it. What about knocking on wood? That's usually an act that someone does when they've said something that they don't want to have happen. So they've spoken negative words and then they've gone, oh, touch wood, so that they don't jinx it. Now, I don't know much about this one. Having said that, I've been guilty of doing that. Touch wood, I often do. But I wonder if the process of knocking is to clear the vibration of the negative through the soul. It kind of resonates with me that if you do a firm knock or several knocks on wood, it's going to vibrate through you. And it would perhaps potentially release that negative thought you've just had. I've often seen people who will knock on angel cards or tarot cards. If somebody else has held their pack of cards and it therefore contains the energy of the other person, they'll often knock on them very firmly uh, to release the energy of the other person that was holding them so that they can then charge the cards with their own energy. So that's my take on the knock on wood. But again, it is kind of fear-based, although I I do like that it helps you to quickly pick yourself up when you've said something negative or something that you feel like you're going to jinx. So sometimes people will say something positive and then go, oh, touch wood, hoping that it is going to happen. So at least you're becoming aware of your words and that's always got to be a good thing two quite popular ones that I don't mind because I think they're quite positive. One is make a wish on a wishbone. The second is cross your fingers. And I've been known to do both. Again, they're positive. So the make a wish on a wishbone, the beauty of that is that in that moment that you've got the wishbone and whether you're making a wish on the bone or whether you've chosen to snap the bone with somebody else and the person with the largest piece gets to make the wish, It doesn't really matter but what it does do is again it places you in that moment of what is it I really wish for. Kind of similar to seeing a shooting star which by the way I saw the best one of my life only a few weeks ago while holidaying down at Normanville. It was extraordinary. The crossing of the fingers. Again this is a beautiful positive one. This came about apparently as a gesture that's said to date back to early Christianity. So the story goes that two people used to cross their index fingers when they were making a wish, and it's a symbol of support from a friend to the person making the wish. Aw, how beautiful is that? Anything, though, associated with the shape of the Christian cross, of course, it's always thought to be good luck. The tradition has evolved to be something now where people these days don't even have to cross their own fingers. They just say, fingers crossed, And it's enough to get the message across. What I love about this one, though, is that it just gives you greater emphasis on something that you really want to have happen. So the mindset is another little opportunity to focus more to help you to manifest. And that has got to be a good thing. To wrap up the question of superstition, my summary is if you're giving your power away in a fear-based way, don't do it. If, however, it's a positive thing and it's reinforcing a connection with the universe to support you, then it's a good thing. So go ahead and do that. More what we're talking about here, perhaps, is how is it that you're communicating with the universe? Are you asking for signs? And if you are, are you open to seeing them? Superstitions have been passed down from generation to generation. They're old wives' tales, perhaps, or they're just things that you've always known. If you really are asking for signs from the universe, are you open to seeing them? Ask to notice it without doubt and look for the ones that we've talked about in endless podcasts, things like repeated numbers, songs. That's one of my favourite ones. In fact, lyrics, even better. When you turn the radio on and there's a lyric of a song that just gives you the affirmation the answer the insight that you've been asking for and in fact often when I'm coaching people who have been widowed and they're wanting to connect with their loved one I ask them to set an intent around a song because it seems to be something that's very easy for the universe to manifest it's an easy way for the other side to communicate with us in lyrics or in a particular song and they have a pretty high success rate of it happening which is great Look for synchronicity of animals that you see. Animals are symbolic of so much. And then when you do see that animal, Google it to see what the symbolism is. Of course, feathers. I've talked about that so many times. But they're a beautiful, significant symbol of the universe, of angels. What about objects that grab your attention? Look for the meaning in it scent is another way that the universe communicates with us particularly loved ones on the other side you know you may find yourself waking up in the morning first thing in the morning or in the middle of the night and you've got that scent it could be lavender and there's the memory of grandma or maybe it's tobacco smell or a cigar smoke and that's the memory of grandpa scent also appears to be a very easy way for our loved ones to communicate with us What about the physical body? Let's not forget that the universe is always communicating to us through our physical body and dreams, endless discussion that could go on there. And then we can look for random encounters or roadblocks, traffic. Are you in the flow? Are you out of the flow? It is completely up to you how you communicate with the universe, but have a good look at what your superstitions are, and at the same time look how you could switch them to more positive ways of being open to receiving the signs of support from the universe. You have new mail. My oldest child is four, and I think, like me, is a highly sensitive person. He often has meltdowns, and I always tell him it's okay to cry and be sad but sometimes he pulls away from me and does not want to be embraced. The section of the poem sitting in someone's sadness without fixing it, it's how I feel I need to be with him, but I struggle with this. I guess I'm looking for some more information on how I can help him in this situation. This is a great question and one I completely identify with. I have two beautiful children who are highly sensitive, aged at the moment 17 and 15. Both of them at different times have demonstrated the need to withdraw when they're having meltdowns. So I'll get onto that in a moment. But first, I just wanted to reference the poem that has been mentioned in this email. That is about the poem called The Invitation by a Mountain Dreamer. It is the most beautiful poem ever. And if you want to hear more about that, then you can Google the invitation and it'll come up with all of the words or you can head to our love life episode 83 called what really matters in life where beck and i delve into great detail and dissect it line by line for so much beautiful interpretation okay so back to the question this young child having a meltdown when they do rejecting the offer of comfort so going into my understanding of highly sensitive people and highly sensitive children I want to first off say that one rule doesn't fit all. But what I will say is going on in this situation is that this child is in an energetic overwhelmment, sensory overload. Everything is just too much. And the presence of even a loving parent that is wanting to console and comfort is just too much. They need to be alone. And often the crying, The rocking, the repetitive kind of humming or noise making that can go on when a massive meltdown is occurring is actually their internal guidance system balancing them. The best thing that you can do is let them know that you love them, that they are safe and that you are there when they're ready. Now, I would always walk past the room. I try to keep doors open in my home. And I would always walk past and just let them know that I'm constantly there checking, but I'm not interfering. And I keep that sensitive mother ear out to hear the change in tone from the crying or sobbing, or sometimes there can be chanting. There can be all sorts of vocal noises going on that is an internal balance of releasing of energy that is just too much for them to cope with and you'll hear a change in it and that's the moment that you're able to go in gently and I usually don't say anything at all I just gently walk in sit on their bed and place my hand usually on like their leg I try to not crowd their body I go for the furthest point and just see what the reaction is I don't try to fix anything. All I do is help them at that point forward to know that everything is fine. One of the things that highly sensitive people, and this starts from a very young age, experience is shame after a meltdown. The shame is very deeply felt. It can also be felt as embarrassment. It is really important in that moment that that child is validated that it is all okay it is fine for us to feel and experience and do whatever it is we feel we need to experience and feel and do to regain our balance. So judgment has to be left at the door. When we go in to comfort another, we often go into problem solving. And when we go into problem solving, we start to load more anxiousness more shame, more embarrassment onto the individual by saying, what is it that's wrong and how can I fix it? I.e., there's something deeply wrong with you and you clearly can't fix it yourself. So I'll come in and rescue you and I'll take care of everything because you're not capable of doing it. Now, that's one potential internal dialogue that could be going on, either consciously or subconsciously. But we don't want to be the catalyst for that dialogue. We want acceptance here. In fact, neutral. It just is what it is. Not even an acceptance. A higher vibrational point at this would actually be no observation at all except the deep desire to connect. That's all. To be seen, to be heard, to be felt, and to know that you matter. And so I creep in and I place my hand on her leg And I just look for the reaction. Now, I've mistimed this sometimes and I'll get the withdrawal. She'll pull her leg away from me and turn her back. I just gently leave the room or I will stay there if she's not telling me to go. She may just say, go, leave, leave me alone. I don't want you in here. And also try to have some resilience around this. There can be some really hurtful things said from children depending on their age to reject you while they're in this process of healing from a meltdown just let it go that took me a while to learn i must i must share so if she allows me to stay in the room then i just sit with her and then i again listen to whether it's her breathing or any sounds that she is making or her tears and i i wait for that shift again and then I'll place my hand on her. And if she allows me, I've always conditioned my children with long fingernails, I give them tickles on their back. And even to this day, and I am sure that they will be however old they get to with me being however old I get to, still doing that to them as a comfort sign, that it's not just comfort, it's a sign actually of my love and my desire to want to connect. So I also find that that sensory is very calming. So that's the point where I just help them to move from they've got themselves to a reasonable place of balance. And now what I'm wanting them to do is feel the love and the acceptance and that all is well and all is okay. And they likely will be quite tired after a a meltdown. And so it's that calming place to get them into that loving feeling, ready for them likely to want to close their eyes and fall asleep. Now, it's harder if you're in a public place and they're having a meltdown, if you're at somebody else's home. Again, really, you want to try and isolate them. They need to be alone. Now, you may find them that they've found that themselves, that they've found a corner somewhere, that they've gone and hidden themselves while they're having their meltdown. And it can be perceived that they're doing that to be dramatic. It can be perceived as being attention-seeking behaviour, particularly if this occurs a lot. And it does occur a lot in the high sensation-seeking, highly sensitive child. It is tough. Hang in there. It gets easier. They learn better tools. You'll learn better tools. And they learn to recognise the early warning signs so they can manage themselves better. In the meantime, though, there's often only one way that we learn to manage ourselves better, and that is through the observation of what's not working for us. So the time to have a conversation about the meltdown, if they're old enough for that conversation, and I think most children are old enough to be spoken to about their feelings from very young age, is not when they've recovered from the meltdown, but maybe another day when they're floating around happy and you don't want to pull them down into a negative feeling, but you just say to them, I love seeing you so happy. I love seeing you joyful, full of peace or laughter. And I just wanted to say that what is it that you're feeling right now and you think that we could help you to feel this again when you start to feel overwhelmed? What is it that you feel I could be doing for you when you start to feel overwhelmed that would help you to be able to calm down and feel safer quicker? and they often will give you words. I've had those conversations not really expecting any answer, but kind of putting it out to the universe that let's give this conversation a go, and I've been surprised with some great answers, and I've been told exactly what to do in that moment. Mental note, make sure you do what was requested next time you're in that situation. So it's all about understanding that they have filled their energy bucket up and overflowed with other people's stuff and emotions and sensory overload, and they are just literally trying to get it out. I have another friend whose child, uh, she has a boy who also suffers from very similar, and something I did with this child is that I drew pictures of of him sitting and observing his two older sisters fighting And I did some lightning bolts of energy from the two sisters that were fighting. And then I did a lightning bolt that went from the two sisters fighting and it kind of ricocheted off of one of the sisters and into the body of this younger child. And then I did a photo of mum and dad having a discussion and their energy went between the two of them, but it also ricocheted and went into this younger child. And the child understood this. This graphic was so good to get them to understand that they were collecting energy from everyone around them. And then I drew a picture of this child just filled with everybody else's lightning bolts of energy. And that's when I opened the discussion about what could be done to help this child to stop the lightning bolts from going into him. Or if they go into him, what can he do to get their energy out? The first thing I said was something like jumping or running, that jumping is good. It's like jolting the body to try and release some of this energy. It could be if they're a really active child, maybe a punching bag, a running machine, or if they can get outdoors, go running. It also is about after getting that energy out, recognizing that the adrenaline has created so much tiredness within their body. So I also encourage this family to get a little safe place for this child to have his own private space. Now, they live in a beautiful farm, and so they created like a teepee kind of thing out in the woods, and that was his place. Nobody was allowed inside there without being invited in. It was his space to go to at any point that he felt he needed to be alone and that has really helped this child to understand what is going on for the highly sensitive child taking in everybody else's energy and not and feeling really bad about it they take on everyone else's stuff they know when mum and dad are angry they know when the sister's sad they know when the teacher's not happy etc and this lets them create a ritual around releasing that energy when it's too much and then going into the restorative state of alone space and having that respected. So I hope that that has helped. You have new mail. My marriage ended five months ago and I'm really struggling, Jane. I know you say to take time to heal after a breakup. However, I feel lonely and lost and feel like I need to get out and meet someone new. To help me to get over the marriage as my wife won't allow me another chance to make it work. I need to move on and want you to say that I should. This is an email that I get in various different versions just about every single day. And in fact, it prompted me recently to write an article that I submitted to local psychologists and healthcare professionals and general practitioners to educate the healthcare workers about how this is becoming a growing problem. The problem that I am seeing is social isolation for newly single men. Now, before the women that are single and have gone through a marriage or a long term relationship breakup throw their arms in the air and say, but hang on, I went through that too. I get it. I'm doing some generalizations here. However, the difference that we see between the male and the female traditionally in separation is that the female usually has a good support network, whether it's good girlfriends, people they work with that they trust, family members, parents. Sadly for many men, this is not the case. We've got now over 50% of marriages ending in separation and the recent data I'm getting is suggesting that men who are post-separation are really becoming increasingly socially isolated. They're experiencing loneliness and deep disconnection. And I believe that if this is not addressed soon after separation, it can really lead to anxiety and depression. And I don't want to put it out to the universe. However, I suspect too, that this is a part of the problem that we have in Western society that's resulted in increased suicide or suicide attempts by men. So I feel that this question is timely to talk about because even if you are not a male in this situation, you likely know somebody in this situation. And I want my answer to be a call to action of how we as a society, as a community can be reaching out And helping to support men in this situation. Now here's statistically what happens with the majority of separations. Typically it's the female that leaves the male and the male often had no idea that the marriage really was in trouble. It leaves the male shocked, in deep emotional pain and in many cases he also quickly becomes socially isolated. Often, the female's driven the social opportunities as a couple and they continue to have their support network of friends, while men struggle with not just the loss of the relationship, but they often struggle with the loss of the friendships too. So if you think of the couple scenario where you've all got couple friends, unfortunately, so many people feel that they have to choose sides. And so often, the main contact has also been with the female that they gravitate naturally to support the female. The male will also often step away from drama quicker than the female. And so therefore, if there is drama with friendship groups about he said this, she said that, I don't want to get involved or I'm taking sides or I'm loyal with that person and not with you, the guys will actually step away from that drama and let go of the friendship. So this perpetuates the loneliness because they lose their support network as well. Now, what happens next is in an attempt to eradicate loneliness, many start to explore the field of online dating in the hope of meeting someone. And that's what this email is about. This guy's wanting me to say, yeah, get out there, find a replacement quickly. The pain will go away. You'll feel love again. And that does actually work it leads to what I call a cleansing relationship. Many people call it the rebound relationship. I call it the cleansing one because it does cleanse, it does heal, and it does help. The danger of the cleansing relationship is that either consciously or subconsciously, people tend to choose the person who is the complete opposite of their last partner or they choose somebody who demonstrates in abundance the quality that they believe was lacking in their long-term relationship with their last partner. So what happens here is that If you've been in a relationship where perhaps there's been a lack of affection, maybe there's been no sex, you could likely be drawn to somebody who is incredibly affectionate or maybe somebody who's really leading with sexual energy and the sex is going to be off the scales. It's going to be amazing. Maybe you thought your relationship was too serious and mundane. You're going to end up grabbing somebody who's incredibly spontaneous and out there and frivolous and not serious And the danger that comes from these extremes is that it's fun for a while and it certainly helps heal the pain of separation. However, that person is likely to not be an ideal match for you. So what happens is quite quickly into the relationship, you start to realize, hang on, this isn't working. This isn't right for me. So what happens is that now you're faced with another breakup. So I want to help people to avoid this. The first thing I want to talk about is that because social opportunities in society are extremely limited what somebody moves out of their typical, say, 20s, And they're, you know, over hanging out in pubs and clubs and parties and events. They then turn to online dating. And while this is enticing and it seems like a quick fix, engaging with anonymous people on social media really is potentially dangerous, both physically and emotionally, particularly for those who are emotionally vulnerable. You must recognize that right now in this situation, you are emotionally vulnerable to the first person who comes along. And makes you feel good. Now, recent data is now suggesting that up to 95% of online profiles are not authentic, and a large number of these profiles are from overseas scammers. In Australia alone, we're losing $1 billion dollars annually to very sophisticated online dating scams. Now that's about $8 million per month and many of these scammers are deliberately targeting those who are presenting as newly created, they've got their new profiles up online, they're newly single and they are emotionally vulnerable. Now some of these scams are so elaborate that even a person who has got it so together in life in every other area, they're intelligent, they're successful, they've got the great career, you know, they've got everything else going on except the committed monogamous relationship. They are vulnerable to these scammers. Now, many people have not dated or socialized as a single person for decades, particularly if they married their childhood sweetheart. And so what happens is they present emotionally immature online. Most will revert to behavior that they learned from their past experiences, and those were likely based when they were last single. And that could possibly be as young as teenagers. So it makes them vulnerable to being manipulated by these clever scammers. And this is not what an emotionally vulnerable person needs right now. Imagine adding being scammed to what they've already gone through. It's going to add shame, embarrassment, financial loss, and it's also going to contribute to a decline in their emotional state. So I really warn people to be smart with online dating. Now that's not to say that there's not amazing people out there. If you're online and you're listening to this podcast, chances are you're pretty amazing and you're going to be one of those genuine, beautiful people that are online. But get smart. Do not engage in long-term banter back and forth with emails. Get offline quickly. You need no more than two, maybe three emails back and forth. You go and meet them in a public place and that. I mean, and by that, I mean something like go for a coffee. It's a short opportunity to meet somebody that lets you get out if they're not who they say they are. And doing it in a public coffee shop, you've got people around you. Check in with a friend. Never give anything private about you to a stranger that you've met online. Don't divulge surnames. Don't divulge where you work. Don't divulge anything that can make you identifiable. Keep yourself safe. Separation also results in self-worth becoming drastically reduced Now, this leads to a lack of confidence and therefore that leads to a lack of being able to effectively socialize. So the fear of presenting socially post-separation can also be so large that it will actually cripple the individual. It will stop them from even trying to expand themselves by getting out and socializing and interacting so that actually perpetuates the problem of social withdrawal it actually it keeps the man in the man cave so my advice to those that are newly separated is that the people around them those of you listening that know single men and women encourage them to move out of their comfort zones but to start to present socially gently engaging just in interacting with others with no intent of dating yet or finding a partner. Now, if you do choose to date and you feel ready and you do want to have a relationship, please go in with eyes wide open about the cleansing relationship. Now, the safest way to do that is to not move into a commitment that's hard to undo. Don't go moving in and living together within a few months of each other. And I see these and hear these stories all the time. Take your time. Sure, sure, spend time getting to know this lovely person that's entered your life. Enjoy the fun of being in a new relationship. Enjoy the fun of feeling validated. Enjoy the self-worth that grows, the confidence that grows. Enjoy feeling the beauty of connecting with another person. But don't rush it. Take your time, and really see them in all four seasons. Make sure that you really date them for like a year before you really have talk of long-term commitment. One of the things I do really want to encourage people who are in this situation of feeling socially isolated and lonely is that it is important that you push through this. While it might feel simpler and easier to stay at home in the man cave, or if it's a girl in the girl cave, Particularly as we get older and we've done some self-development and we've learned to like ourselves, we like our own company, it's very easy to stay isolated and become more and more and more isolated over time. My advice is to start to socialise with the intention purely of fun of having a new experience. Now, of course, here in Adelaide, I've got Social 8, which caters perfectly to people in this scenario. But there are social clubs that are similar, not the same, but similar to what I run all around the world. There's a franchise called Table for 8. There's another Table for 6 dinner for six. There's all variations of that. If you just Google dinner club for singles, it'll come up with something in your area. Now, that's a really easy way to start going out, trying new restaurants, trying new food, meeting new people. You don't need to be nervous. It's a couple of hours at the most of enjoying a group setting of people that are in a very similar situation to you. And, you know, when you connect with someone who's got a similar story, It feels very validating. It feels great. The other thing is try new activities. Meetup has all sorts of things going on at the moment. You might want to try archery or an abstract painting class, or you might want to learn how to make sushi. Get that bucket list out and start ticking some things off it. You might want to learn to speak Italian with the goal of planning an amazing trip to Italy where you can practice your Italian speaking in the native country. Get creative and get excited about how you can spend your leisure time having fun with new experiences. And you know what's going to happen. You're likely going to meet somebody fabulous that you are compatible with and that you could have a great relationship with as you focus on the fun of engaging with life. It takes the pressure off of the whole dating thing. I have a little mantra I love to give to my clients and it goes like this. I'm looking forward to connecting with interesting people and having fun. Now, there's three key words in that. The first one is connecting. You know that beautiful feeling when you meet somebody and you may never see them again, but in that moment, you have a conversation and you see and feel each other. You really hear each other and it just feels gorgeous. That's what I'm talking about with connection. It could be that you connect over a past memory. It could be that you connect over a mutual person you know. It could be you connect over a shared experience that you didn't even know you'd both had. It doesn't matter what the connection is about. It's just that gorgeous feeling. The next key word in there is interesting. You might meet people that have a career that you've never known anybody to do, or they've traveled to somewhere you've never heard of, or they've got a hobby or an interest that you'd love to learn more about. Interesting is the expansion of self. And the key word at the end is fun because when you're having fun, it gives you the incentive to do more of it. So it's going to get you out of the girl or boy cave much more often than if you're not having fun. And in amongst all that goodness of connecting with interesting people and having fun, guess what? Along comes the law of attraction. Your vibration is now raised to a really high point of attraction. Therefore, what you attract into your life is going to be a higher quality match for what you are desiring in life than if you'd not gone through the experience of focusing on fun. You detach from the outcome of I want to go out tonight and meet someone special and you go out and it doesn't happen, you feel deflated, you feel like you've failed, you feel like it's just not worth it, it's all too hard. Whereas if you go out with the intention of having fun, you therefore are likely to achieve that because we know that fun is a mindset. It's a state of mind. So you commit your intent to having fun. You're going to have fun. And as you do that, everything else falls into place. So I hope that that does give this person permission to get out there and have fun. But I'm not really giving you permission to go and find a replacement partner unless you're doing it fully consciously and in a very slow, organic way, so that you can have the relationship that you are worthy of. I hope you've enjoyed hearing some of the emails in my inbox. These emails are from a variety of places. The Love Life listeners, radio listeners, coaching clients, and also from members of my singles club, Social 8. Now, if you've received value from today's episode, of course, I always welcome your financial support to assist in the cost of producing the show. So if you want to make a donation, buy me a cup of coffee, head to thelovelifeshow.com. Or if you identified with today's episode and you'd like some one-on-one coaching around today's topics or really any topic at all, please head to my website to book in a private session at janedonovan.com.au. So until next week, have a divine time spent connecting with interesting people and having fun. Life is perfect, I'm not trying, it's just happening.